0: You'll take out your worship guide and turn to the book of Galatians. We're going to be looking at several passages there in the book of Galatians and looking at this study. As I mentioned, the books out there on the table, uh, they're there for your purchase and use. Uh, The cost of the book is $15. I promise you we're not making any money on those. We do want to get a book into your hands though. It'd be a great tool. In fact, it's my prayer that this book will become somewhat of a curriculum or a or a guide for those who have trusted in Christ, and we're always asking the question, you know, after someone trusts Christ, after they've received God's grace, what's that next step? Well, it's to grow in that grace and understanding who God is and what God has done for them and who God has made them to be now as new creations in Christ, and then how they live from Christ. They live as they abide in the vine. And so what this series is going to do is show you how to embrace the great, to, to embrace God's grace truly in all of its wonderful goodness and truth, and then how we endure the struggle of both the now and the not yet of the gospel, how we are justified but we're growing and maturing in our justification. And, uh, and so I think that this series is going to be a great help. If you've never... Um, been through discipling we're going to be basically group discipling one another together and finding out what all the Christian life is about Um, because the reality is is when it comes to Christianity that word has been often convoluted and confused and so that's the title of our message today it's entitled convoluted Christianity and so before we get into the message I just want to read this introduction here, and then we'll read some scripture together. Our summer study as a church family, as I mentioned, will be based loosely off of this book, Real Christianity, written by Carrie Schmidt. Each week, we'll be highlighting a chapter from this book and also studying God's Word together as we seek to grow in grace and living out the Christian life. And so this study will be enhanced each week by our small group times following the morning worship service. Each one of our small group's leaders has... uh, 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 submitted to uh, going through this journey with us together and so we have four or five small groups that are going to be meeting again you can get the information on where those are meeting after the service at our next step station but basically it's going to be about a half hour group discussion time afterwards with several discussion questions that you can see there on the back of your worship guide and so we invite you to stay and connect during this season I'm looking forward to this study together so let's read God's Word And then we'll look at the introduction. Uh, Galatians chapter number 1. We're also going to be in Galatians chapter number 3. And also chapter number 5. Reading several passages here this morning as we start our journey. All right, verse 6 of Galatians 1. I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel. Which is not another, but there be some that trouble you that would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said, therefore, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that you have received, let him be accursed. Now, I don't know about you, but when I was growing up as a Christian, I thought that this passage was written to say, beware of the cults, like the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses and, and others who had... Try to take the name Christian, and but it's really not. And certainly that would apply here in this passage. Beware of false teaching cults that are out there that would say that it's not the finished work of Jesus, but that it, that it, that it might be Jesus plus your good works, plus your efforts, plus your ability to change your life. Or it might just be a straight-up work salvation just to begin with. But what Paul is uh, addressing here, in fact, throughout this whole chapter or throughout this whole book, He's addressing the Old Testament Judaistic thinking that you're justified by following the law of Moses. And so he's going to bring that up on several occasions throughout this passage. And so if you study out the history of this passage, uh, the, the history of this letter, you'll find out that Judaizers had come from Jerusalem to the churches of Galatia. And they were saying, yeah, it's great you talk about all that Jesus stuff, but don't you know you still got to be circumcised? Don't you know you still got to follow the Saturday Sabbath? Don't you know you still got to follow all those dietary rules? Because, after all, you're not really a Christian unless you do that too. That's what Paul's addressing, and he's saying, beware, do not pervert and twist the gospel of Christ. So keep that in mind as we turn over now to Galatians 3, verses 1 through 3. And we're going to come back and touch some other things here. I have a lot to get through today, but... Just want to point out some things to you. Galatians 3, verses 1 through 3. He says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Who has deceived you? Who has confused you that you should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth and crucified among you? This only would I learn of you. Received ye the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? So he says, How did you get saved? By following the works of the law or by faith? He's, Paul says over in another epistle, by grace, or you say, through faith, and that not of ourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. You know, if it was of works, what would we be able to do? We'd be able to say, see what I did, rather than look what Jesus did? Ooh, you see the difference there? You see that religion says, see what I did. Gospel says, look at what Jesus did. Amen. And so he says, are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are you now made perfect by the flesh? And Paul's referring with that phrase, perfect by the flesh, he's referring back to the works of the law. So he says, listen, you got saved through the hearing of faith, not the works of the law, and now you think that the works of the law are going to help to perfect you, to grow you, to mature you in grace? No, that's not how this works. Of course, Paul in many other places, in Romans and in Uh, Hebrews makes it very clear that the law was our schoolmaster, and of course, even Galatians, he says, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, but after that, faith has come. We are no longer under a schoolmaster. That's good news. It changes us. It transforms us. So, all that said, look over Galatians 5, all right? Galatians 5. Paul says in verse 1, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Behold, I, Paul, say unto you, that if ye be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. Paul saying, listen, it's all or nothing here. You either try to live by the law or you live by faith in what Christ has done. He fulfilled the law. He kept the law. Trust him and watch how Christ transformed your life. So he says... Christ profits you nothing if you try to still have a little bit of your law there. Verse 3 For I testify again to every man that is circumcised that he is a debtor to do the whole law. You see the Judaizers were trying to have you know choose your own buffet of laws but they weren't willing to follow the other ones and so Paul reminds them and he's really alluding to James 2 verse 10 where James says he that keeps the whole law and yet offends in one point he's guilty of what? He's guilty of all So he says, Christ has become of no effect unto you. Whosoever of you are justified by the law, ye are fallen from grace. For we, through the Spirit, wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision, but faith which worketh by love. Oh, I love that because Paul says in another epistle in Romans that love is the fulfilling of the law. Of course, if you love your neighbor, you're not going to steal from him, commit adultery against his spouse. You're not going to lie to him, murder him. Of course, love is the fulfilling of the law. Ye did run well. Who did hinder you that you should not obey the truth? So these believers, these young believers, were being deceived and confused. Christianity was becoming convoluted because of this false teaching that had crept into the churches of Galatia. Verse 8, this persuasion comes not of him that calls you. Paul's saying this is not from God. And then he says, a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. And clearly, the context, Paul is saying that the leaven here is the law. That the law ruins the whole thing. It's either of works or it's by faith. It can't be by both. Father, I pray you'd help us as we take these passages that we've looked at this morning and as we talk about this first chapter of this book. Father, thank you that this book is really uh, pulled straight from your word and ultimately it leads us to who you are. And it leads us to seeing what you say there in the book of Jeremiah, that you are a God who has loved us with an everlasting love and with loving kindness you have drawn us. Certainly you have drawn the nation of Israel. And you continue to do that. You will keep your promises to the nation and to the remnant who truly places their faith in you. And, but, Father, also, because we're that wild olive branch grafted in, we're the church, we can also say that you've drawn us with loving kindness. In fact, you so love the world that you gave your only begotten Son. Father, help us today as we look at this topic of confusing, convoluted Christianity. Help us to grow in our understanding of what a Christian truly is and how we can best represent christianity to a lost and dying world we pray these things in jesus name amen every year over 16 and a half million people fall victim to identity theft has anyone in here ever fallen victim to identity theft raise your hand if you have wow you are okay andrew has sarah has all right Um, raise your hand if you know someone who's fallen victim to identity theft all right maybe a few more 16 and a half million people that's that that's a lot um, why is identity theft so powerful and destructive? Because often it, it happens underneath our radar unless we have LifeLock. So I'm not going to make a shameless plug for an identity theft prevention here, but, but, you know, it's only $9.99 a month, $9.99, and they monitor your credit. Maybe some of you already have that now on your insurance. I know that more insurances are starting to offer that. Some banks are doing that. How many of you have ever gotten an alert that someone was trying to steal your identity? Raise your hand. Yeah, how many of you were thankful for that? Amen? Uh, wow. Um, and so, yes, why is this so destructive? Because a lot of times it happens underneath our radar without our knowledge. And for many weeks or months, people run up bills in our name, and then we're left holding the bag. Well, there's an introduction in the chapter of this book. In 2001, a 20-year-old named Jerry Phillips hijacked the name of a Connecticut salesman named John Harrison. He opened and maxed out charge accounts with Lowe's, Home Depot, Sears, and other. I guess he needed to buy a lot of tools and lawnmowers. I don't know. Um, he bought two new cars. He bought two new motorcycles. Hopefully, they were Harleys. And, just, and in just four months, Harrison had over $265,000 charged against his name. Ugh. How, how, I mean, how would you feel if you woke up one day and, and, and got online, you know, and looked at your credit, and you're like, what? Come again? $265,000? Now, of course, um, of course, this man wasn't—of uh, course, John Harrison wasn't guilty of doing this. This guy, Jerry, had stole his identity. But Harrison then invested over 2,000 hours of his personal time and thousands of dollars in legal fees to convince authorities that he didn't make those purchases. After a lengthy investigation, police finally arrested Phillips for the crime. But sadly, four years later, Harrison was still strapped with over 140 grand of bills that he was having to pay. Similarly, Christianity has had an identity theft. The name Christian has been so muddied, confused, convoluted, hijacked. Millions of people view the term through a phony lens or a completely skewed perspective. And sadly, guys, because of this confusion and distortion, many unbelievers never give serious investigation to the truths of Christianity. And many believers live their lives with false assumptions and failed expectations to what Christianity is all about. In fact, you might be here this morning. And you might say, you know, I'm not a believer. I'm a skeptic. I don't don't know Christ. This is the first time I've been in church in a while. And you might say, I don't want to have anything to do with Christianity. I ask you the question, why is that? Is it perhaps because of a skewed perspective of what true Christianity is all about? Do you know what I find most of the time when I talk to skeptics and atheists? Do you know what they've rejected? They've rejected religious systems. They've rejected convoluted Christianity. They've not rejected biblical Christianity. And so today, if you don't know Christ, please listen closely because unfortunately, a lot of Christian institutions have confused this and we don't want to add to that confusion. We want to be a part of the solution and bring clarity to what the gospel is, to who God is, to how we can have a relationship with him. So today, we study in a general way Paul's letter here to the churches of Galatia. And we examine three culprits that have contributed to the confusion of Christianity. So, culprit number one is religion. Culprit number one, there in your notes, is religion. Church structures and powerful denominations, unfortunately, have muddied the waters of God's word in this term, Christian. Sadly, one of the greatest causes for confusion is religion itself. Um, And that's what Paul here is addressing in Galatians chapter number 1, as I said. Paul was not really even pointing out um, other cults outside of, really, Judaistic religion. You see, Judaistic religion was saying you still have to keep the law of Moses in order to be justified. Or, Or maybe not justification, but certainly for your sanctification, you've got to try to be good, act good, get good. And so the Jude, so the Judaizers, this religious system, was trying to come back into Christianity and impose itself upon Christianity and muddy the truth of the gospel. And so many of us grew up in in a religious structure that was oppressive and confusing. Many of us probably were raised to believe that the Bible was not something that was really understandable or relevant to our daily life. You know, only the holy man behind the sacred desk could interpret it. You know, that's how religion was, even in Christian religion, for thousands of years. There was only a certain group of people who could even read the Bible, let alone understand it. And so those systems were propped up to keep people in the dark, literally the dark ages. And so the first culprit to this confusion of Christianity, number one, is religion itself. Religion itself. People were taught that the Bible could not be understood or that the Bible was not relevant for their life. People were taught that God was only approachable through a priest or some dead saint or some spiritual guru. How many of you like those, uh, well... Not like them in a like-like way, but how many of you have ever seen those spiritual gurus that come on late-night TV on the Christian network? Yeah, 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 the spiritual gurus. And you can't get your special anointing unless you get them to bless a holy hanky for the low, low price of $999. But anyway, trying to be careful here. Um, so the spiritual gurus, right? And so, listen, some of us, and this is important for us to examine because we, perhaps some of us, grew up in a system where Jesus was talked about. Yeah, Jesus was a good moral teacher. He was God, but, but, but they really weren't taught about the clarity of what Jesus did for them, that Jesus really did pay for all of their sin, not just some of it, not just the sins of their past. No, Jesus died for all trespasses, all sin. And so they were taught that Jesus might have not really paid for all their sin, or they were taught that keeping laws and traditions was the way to eternal salvation or yes the law might not have been needful for salvation but it was certainly needed to grow closer to God and so what you have is is you have hundreds yea, thousands of years of religious structure and powerful denominations that have oppressed people from knowing the truth these institutions and systems held people hostage to man-made traditions works-based salvation and complex structures of false and confusing teaching and almost none of that when you actually read the Bible be found as a part of Jesus' teaching. Amazing, isn't it? In fact, the Pharisees themselves confronted Jesus about breaking their traditions. If you really read the Gospels, Matthew through John, you'll find out that Jesus wasn't about being held hostage to man's traditions. He was all about fulfilling his father's business, the plan of redemption, the truth of the gospel. You see, the hardest thing, catch this, the hardest thing for the religious Jew of Jesus' day was for them to let go of what they thought was justifying them before God. They They were being confronted with their system of justification. They thought that keeping the law was the way that they would be justified. And Jesus came and said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you're going to perish. Which means that all of them should have said, whoa, we're in trouble. The scribes and the Pharisees, they're the best behaved religious people we know. They know most of the Old Testament, the first five books of the Old Testament, from memory. And you're saying we've got to be better than them? What was Jesus trying to point out to them? That salvation isn't earned, it's received. It's not a religious system, it's a vibrant living relationship with the God of heaven. And so the first culprit that has convoluted and confused Christianity is the devil's deception of religious systems that seek to distort, twist, Paul's word, pervert, the truth of the gospel. So the Jew in Jesus' day, the religious Jew, the biggest thing that they were being called to repent of was to repent of their religion. In fact, do you realize the people who readily received Jesus the easiest were the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the cheats, the sinners? You people, do you realize the people who murdered Jesus were the religious ones? The ones who thought that their self-righteousness would earn them standing with God. So perhaps this morning, the greatest thing God is calling you to repent of this morning is to repent of religion, to repent of what you think in your efforts will justify you before God. This is exactly what Paul had to do. Turn with me quickly to Philippians chapter number 3. I want you to see this passage of Scripture. Philippians chapter number 3. We're going to just read a few verses, verses 4 through 9 of Philippians 3. This was Paul. Paul was in the religious system. He had grown up in the religious system. He had gone to the religious schools. He had been taught underneath the religious spiritual gurus of his day, the top, Gamaliel. And Paul was a religious zealot. He was killing Christians in the name of his religion. Look at what it says in Philippians 3 verse 4 though I might also have confidence in the flesh, meaning confidence in the efforts that he lived in the law. He talks about that up in the verses before this. If any man thinketh that he have whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. And then he lists all the laws that he followed. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law blameless Paul had the system but he did not have the Savior let me say that again Paul had the system but he did not have the Savior Paul had the law but he didn't have the life and perhaps for the first time you're sitting here realizing whoa I've grown up in a system and it's even called Christian, but, but I realized, you know what? I, I might have the system, but do I have the Savior? Have I really seen that it's by grace alone, through faith alone, and the finished work of Christ alone, and nothing else? You see, Paul had the doctrinal information, but he had not received the divine invitation of grace alone, by faith alone, in the gift of righteousness, apart from the system, in Christ alone. And so Paul literally had to be, he had to have a blinding flash of the obvious to break him from his religious system. Literally. He saw Jesus on the road to Damascus. How many of you have ever had a moment like that in your life where in the midst of your systems, God steps in and he says, it's not the system. Now, the system got people to the Savior, thankfully. I mean, the law was the schoolmaster to show people the way to Christ. But Paul sums it up here in verses 7 and 8. He says, But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ, yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and I do count them but dung. Paul didn't mix his words. I do count them but dung that I may win Christ. So this system If you look at another passage of scripture We don't have time to look at it But write it down there in your notes Read it later this week in in your uh, walk with God This is another illustration here Of a religious rich young ruler Who was trying to justify himself in the system And just to summarize the story He came to Jesus looking to justify himself Saying, Master, what shall I do To inherit eternal life? Did you see the problem with his question In verse 18? What shall I do It's not, Master, what did you do? No, it's, Master, what should I do? And, of course, Jesus kind of leads him down his path. He kind of leads him in the system for a little bit and says, Well, have you kept all the commandments? He's like, Yes, of course. I've kept them all from my youth. Before his bar mitzvah as a Jewish boy, before he was accountable as an adult male in the Jewish system. And Jesus, of course, knowing his heart, said, You're not keeping the system perfectly. How do I know? Go sell all that you have and give it to the poor and then come and follow me. What does the Bible say at the end of that passage? The young man went away sad because he couldn't live and justify himself in the system any longer. He couldn't play the games that he had been playing with God. Do you see how religion itself had blinded this rich young ruler to his true condition before God? In fact, do you realize that as you study the word religion in the New Testament, there's only one time where it's mentioned in a positive light? And that's in the book of James, chapter number 1. Isn't that fascinating? Every other time it's mentioned in a negative light, meaning that a religious system isn't what brings life. A religious system is not what justifies us. So sometimes the most difficult thing to repent of in truly coming to Christ is repenting of one's religion. Jesus said it best. I've not come to call the righteous to repentance, but the sick. (laughs) Why? Because the self-righteous don't think they need repentance. So in their system of what they believe makes them acceptable to God, people in their religion, they think that all these other things justify them and validate them, but it's only the finished work of Christ alone. When you start to see that religious idols are just as idolatrous as secular ones, you're starting to see the truth. We love to talk about all of our secular idols, but I hear very little discussion about religious idols. Wow. And so when we have our eyes open and say, you know what? It's not about a religious system, because a religious system is the devil's attempt to confuse the good news of the gospel. He's always tried to do that. He always continues. You see, what religion says is, here's the steps you can take to get up to God on the tippy-toes. You know what the gospel says? Here's how God descended. Here's how God came down to rescue you because you couldn't even get the first step right. Religious idols are just as dangerous, just as idolatrous as secular ones. Many of us, if we're honest, have fallen victim to religious systems that have confused and clouded our understanding of the gospel. And so today... The first culprit we see that is confused and convoluted true biblical Christianity are religious systems, religion itself. Number two, though, another thing that has clouded and confused the gospel is Christianity itself. Christianity itself. Turn back to Galatians chapter 2 for just a moment. Galatians chapter 2. So Paul is laying out here in the book of Galatians how the old religious system of Judaistic religion is not compatible with with biblical Christianity. It was a great thing that brought the Jews to Christ. Um, Galatians 4 says, But in the fullness of, t- t- of, of the time, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. So that's there. So Paul's addressing this issue of religion and how it confuses Christianity. But then number two, he's going to address Christianity itself. Look at chapter 2, verses 11 through, we won't read all these, but 11 through 21 is the passage I want you to see here. And um, sadly, those who claim to know and follow Jesus are often his worst representatives. Isn't that true? Uh, Mahatma Gandhi said, not that I'm a Gandhi follower, but this is true. I'd be a Christian if it were not for the other Christians. That's sad. What What an indictment on the testimony of Christianity at large in the world today. But here in this passage, we see a Christian who was misrepresenting Christianity, and it's Peter. Look at verse 11. But when Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face because he was to be blamed. What was Peter doing? Why did Paul have to confront Peter? Verse 12. For before that, certain came from James. Now, James was the leader of the church at Jerusalem. James was the half-brother of Jesus. He, He certainly had the Jewish background. All these men were Jewish in their upbringing, in their culture, and in their religion. But before that came from James, he did eat with the Gentiles. But when they were come, so there's this group of men that came from Jerusalem who were Jewish, but yet they had trusted Christ. But still, again, we're, we're dealing with the transition period in church history and in the, in, in, in the major revelation of God and, and the finished work of Christ in the new covenant. And it says that this group came... But when they were come, and they were there in Antioch with Peter and the other Gentiles, Peter withdrew himself and separated himself, fearing them which were of the circumcision. And other Jews divided, dissembled likewise with him, insomuch that Barnabas, you know, good old Barnabas, the one who could see good in everybody, the son of encouragement, even Barnabas was disassociating himself from those filthy Gentiles. Insomuch that Barnabas was carried away with their dissimulation. But when I saw that, they walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel. You might want to underline that. According to the truth of the gospel. What does the truth of the gospel say? There's no longer Jew and Gentile, there's the church. He said unto Peter before them all If you, being a Jew, livest after the manner of Gentiles and not as do the Jews, why compellest thou the Gentiles to live as do the Jews? So what you had here was not only a religious system, but you had a Christian who was convoluting Christianity. And Paul addresses it. And if there's anything we need to confront today in the church, it's when we misrepresent what the gospel is. And so a Christian is, I mean, there, there, there's, there, there's all these definitions of, of what people think a Christian is. And in the book, he lists out several of them. You know, Some would say a Christian is a person who sometimes goes to church and tries to be good. Is that is that what a Christian is? No, not according to the Bible. A person uh, some people say a person a Christian is a person who thinks that they're better than others, you know, holier than thou. And yeah, we've probably seen that before. Oh, there goes Sally Sunday school. Oh, there goes Billy Bible. Now, granted, there there are going to be people who accuse us of being holier than thou just because we live different from the world. But it's the attitude. I am God's gift to the church, you know. That kind of attitude, right? No, that's not what a Christian is, according to the Bible. Some say a Christian is a person who is judgmental and always evaluating others. Some say a, a Christian is a person who is hypocritical or doesn't practice what he preaches. Um, if, if you uh, get to know my dad, he's a member of our church here, if you get to know my dad, one of his biggest excuses for not coming to Christ for many years was because of all the hypocrites in the church on Sunday. And then one night, late at night, He had this revelation. I think it was the Holy Spirit. He said, why would you let a hypocrite send you to hell? That was the still, small voice of the Holy Spirit saying, you know what? Don't judge the truthfulness of the gospel in Christianity based on the bad uh, expressions of it by people who are living a hypocritical life. Some say a Christian is a person who is confrontational, pious, and they always like to argue. (laughs) Some say a Christian is a person who is narrow-minded and out of touch with real-life issues. Some say a a Christian is a person who is reclusive from all people who are not just exactly like him or her. Some say a Christian is a person who is one-dimensional or only interested in other Christians. So you see all these definitions? I'm sure you could add some to that list. But how is it that we as Christians convolute Christianity in the biggest ways? Let me just mention a couple. Number one... Obviously, we do that by living a carnal and sinful lifestyle. When we walk in the flesh, when we try to go back to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, when we try to go back to that well that promises satisfaction and quenching of thirst, and we know it's not going to, when we live a carnal and sinful life, we misrepresent the name of Christ. So you can write that down there in your notes. There's not a blank for it, but I encourage you to write that down. Ephesians 5.3 says, But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as becometh, saints. Oh, what's Paul saying there? Paul's saying, here's your identity. You're a holy one. You're a saint. So don't live a carnal and sinful lifestyle. That behavior does not match your new nature. Those clothes don't fit any longer. That's literally the, the picture he's, he's drawing here in chapter four and five of Ephesians. He's saying, listen, put on the new man. Why? Because you are new on the inside.'" And so, fornication, uncleanness, covetousness, let it not be once named among you as becometh saints. What was Paul saying? Stop convoluting Christianity. Live a way that reflects your new nature, who you truly are as saints. Now, we know that every Christian struggles to have their behavior match their belief. We all have a tendency, don't we, if we're honest, to tarnish the name of Jesus. And so God calls us to repent, to change our mind, and to walk in the Spirit. And if we do, we will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. So one of the obvious ways that we misrepresent the name of Christ is carnal and sinful lifestyle. So that's how we convolute Christianity. But number two, a critical and divisive spirit. A critical and divisive spirit. So we read here this passage in Galatians chapter 2. Peter was dividing from the Gentiles when the Jewish dudes were in town. He was hanging out with the Gentiles when they weren't around, but as soon as they showed up, whoop, come over here. I don't know them. Yeah. Peter, I smell bacon. On, oh, no, 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 that's not bacon. That's just that new uh, uh, oil that I'm rubbing in my beard called jojoba oil. <laughs> so Peter was, yeah, jojoba oil smells like bacon. Corey Dozier t- told me about that years ago. Thanks, Corey. Uh, <laughs> i got to get some of that because I love the smell of bacon. My wife does not like the smell of bacon, so she would be a good Jew. She doesn't like the smell of bacon. But anyway, Peter had a critical and divisive spirit here. He He was allowing the law and the fear of man. Ultimately, what was the issue underlying this critical and divisive spirit with Peter? It was fear of what others would say. Now, how do we apply this to our life? Perhaps it's one of those family members or a friend or a relative that's going to come, come to church on, on uh, Easter or, or maybe for the holidays, and you're afraid of how that family member is going to see the church. And so there's this fear now. Oh, well, I can't, I can't pretend to enjoy and be a part of this church because, because this family member might not approve, or, or so-and-so down the road might, might not like it. See the fear of Man. Fear is at the root of most division in the world today, sinful division. And so the law and the fear of man were driving this this critical and divisive spirit with with Peter. Peter was confusing what true Christianity was before the believers in Galatia. He was misrepresenting the name of Christ with his divisiveness. And it was really the root of Peter's sin was the fear of the Jews. Fear. Fear. That's why I love the gospel, because the gospel starts and ends with an angel declaring, fear not. An angel said to the shepherds, fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings. An angel said to Mary at the tomb, fear not, he is risen. So much of our lives are lived in the fear of what others are going to say, what others are going to think, how others are going to view us. And you know what the gospel, the true gospel does? It, for the first time in your life, frees you from that system of fear that Satan has used your entire life to enslave you. And now you're free. (gasps) But if we're free, we'll do whatever we want. No, if you're free, you'll follow after Jesus because you see that he set you free to follow him. It's amazing to me how much of our doctrine is even built on the fear of abuse. If you're toning down a doctrinal belief on the fear of an abuse, you're doing exactly what the Judaizers did, you're doing exactly what Paul accu- Paul's accused of preaching license. Shall we continue in sin that grace? Of course not. Of course we do not continue in sin that grace may abound. So a critical and divisive spirit, that's how we misrepresent the name of Christ and then um, Oh, and then, then then, this passage as well: um, Philippians 1:27, "Only let your conversation be as it becometh the Gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel." And so one of the worst forms of confusion of the Christian name is when other believers treat one another in a wrong way, and the world is watching. And so, a carnival and sinful lifestyle is how we misrepresent the name of Christ. A critical and divisive spirit. And here's what's crazy. A critical and divisive spirit is just as wrong as a carnal and sinful lifestyle. But you know what we like to hear preaching against? The carnal and sinful lifestyle. Well, we we don't, we don't like to hear about preaching against the critical and divisive spirit, or certainly not about a bitter and unforgiving. Well, I'm justified in being bitter and unforgiving. Oh, are you? Tell me about it. Tell me about how that person's sin is so much bigger than than the sin that Jesus died for you on the cross for. Because that's really what we're saying when we're bitter and unforgiving. Is we're saying that that person's sin against you is really bigger than what Christ could pay for. Bitter and unforgiving attitudes. Wow, that is one of the ways that we misrepresent the name of Christ. And grieve not. The Holy Spirit of God. There's so much grief today in the heart of God because of how God's people live. He says, "Let all bitterness, how do we grieve Him, when we let bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking remain and not be put away from us, and be kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you." We misrepresent the name of Christ when we have a bitter and unforgiving spirit. We misrepresent the name of Christ. We convolute it. We confuse it. We twist it to others around us when we have a carnal and sinful lifestyle and when we have a critical and divisive spirit. John's real clear. He goes on to say it this way. If a man say, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he that loveth not his brother, whom he hath seen, How can he love God in whom he has not seen? And so, as much as lieth in us, God has called us to live peaceably with all men, forgiving one another based on the forgiveness Christ has already given you. Mm. So, what confuses Christianity? Religion itself. Paul addresses that here in the book of Galatians with the Judaistic religion trying to come in and distort and twist the gospel. Culprit number two, what confuses religion or what confuses Christianity? Christianity itself. Then number three, we know that also the culture brings confusion to the name, to Christianity. Christian caricatures are plentiful. They're a dime a dozen today. Satan will do everything that he can to blind the minds and misrepresent God's message to the people. We know what the scriptures tell us. It says, Don't marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Many of us have seen Christianity misrepresented in movies, TV shows, bizarre news stories. Um, the examples abound of so called Christian people doing crazy things in the name of Jesus. So you have all the extremes, right? You have Oprah Winfrey, way over here, who says that she's a Christian. And you have Westboro Baptist, if you don't know who that is, you're not missing anything, who say they're a Christian. And so you've got those extremes. You have the word Christian being thrown around by Oprah, Westboro Baptist, and everybody in between. No wonder there's confusion today. In addition to this, you've got politicians, right? You've got politicians who love to take the name of Christian on. I mean, they got, especially during campaign season, they got to make sure they get the shot of them walking out of church on Sunday in their duds. And so they'll use that name in their campaigns to grow their voting base. Athletes, man, athletes. And listen, I'm not saying that I'm thankful for athletes that want to give glory to God. I'm thankful for coaches and athletes who did that. Man, wasn't that a powerful testimony by Dabo Sweeney? Sorry. Dabo, you know, just just had to throw that in there. Dabo Sweeney. Wasn't that a great testimony? But you know what? A lot of athletes use that term, right? Why? Because they sell more jerseys. Hello. They're smart. They know what they're doing. Businesses claim Christianity to build customer relationships and fake integrity. Now, Now, I'm thankful for the truly Christian businesses that are out there. And if you're a Christian business owner, thank you so much for what you do. But we all know that just because you claim the word Christian as a business doesn't mean that you really are. You see, what the word Christian has become is it's become a term of convenience. It's used to shape situations, shape a variety of situations to fit the necessary purpose of the agenda involved. So a politician will take it, an athlete will take it, a business will take it, Oprah will say it, Westboro Baptist will say it. And so our culture has hijacked, abused, distorted, twisted this term. And so with all that said, what, where are we heading in this series? Well, we don't want to confuse Christianity to the world around us. And we certainly don't want to confuse Christianity to those who are within the church. Let me talk to our young people for just a second. Raise your hand if you're a young person. Let's see how many people still think they're young. Good, good. Paul and Deborah Weaver raise their hand. They're, they're 39 and holding, just like I am. Or maybe 29. Sorry, Deborah. Um, anyway, um, let me talk to the young people for just a second. Guys, one of the biggest things you're going to struggle through, I think, I know I did in my growing up years, and I'd, probably a lot of the folks could say the same thing, is you're going to go through a moment, a, t- a season in your life, which I call a crisis of faith. And the temptation is, there's going to be an abuse, there's going to be a hurt, there's going to be a misrepresentation of Christianity that's gonna come along. And the temptation is going to be to turn away from all of it because of what you think Christianity is. And what I wanna tell you is this, what Satan does, he's a master at doing this, is he gets people to reject what they think is biblical Christianity, but what they're rejecting is, is a caricature, an abuse, a false image, an idol. And so, my challenge to you, as well as all of us, is: is don't let the convolution of Christianity, the the distortion of biblical Christianity, turn you off to the truth of the gospel, because it is wonderful, it is transformational. Uh, Joey, I don't know if you remember this, Joey, but, but uh, up in Indiana, we started this. And we still do it from time to time as we're driving around. But Joey and I ride around sometimes, and he sees church buildings. And he says, hey, Daddy, is that a good church or a bad church? <laughs> because I did that early on. When he was little, I said, hey, Joey, you see that church? I said, is it a good church or a bad church? So we talked about that a lot. And he, he's been trained, and he knows that not every church— is accurately reflecting what true Christianity is all about. And so my answer to, uh, to so, so now when I ask you that question, he, he, he responds, and he's like, well, do they preach the gospel? Because that's what makes a church either good or bad. Does that church accurately reflect what true Christianity is all about? You know what my desire for our church is? Is that we would be a true reflection of what biblical Christianity is all about. And so with that said, I want to end with this verse. It's our memory verse for this week. I want to encourage you to memorize this verse this week. We'll come back next Sunday, and we'll all quote. Co- I'm just kidding. We might not all quote it together. But I encourage you to work on some memory verses this summer. Would, would, would you do that with me? I love this verse. The Lord hath appeared of old unto me, saying, Yea, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn thee. Now, this passage was written specifically to the nation of Israel, and Pastor Don's going to share some of that in his small group this morning, the background of this verse. But you know what? What God is calling all of us to is a relationship with him. God wasn't calling the Jewish people to a religious system. In fact, there are several times in the Old Testament when you read it, you'll see, he said, I have no pleasure in your sacrifices. Those are all just symbols of something greater to come. And so God is drawing us to a loving relationship with him. So the questions this morning are, number one, is it possible, they're in the conclusion, is it possible that all of us have fallen victim to some degree of Satan's misinformation and identity theft campaign? Number one, if you do not have a personal relationship with Jesus... My question to you is, is, are you allowing misrepresentations of Christianity, abuses of Christianity, to keep you away from seriously examining the amazing truth of Christianity? If so, I want to challenge you today, stop allowing Satan to paint these false images of what Christianity is in your mind for you to then knock down and reject. But if you're a Christian, which is probably a majority of us this morning, my question to us is, is have we slipped into Confusing and distorting the understanding and application of the gospel, perhaps like Peter did. How many of us have ever been like Peter in our life? This guy has. Sometimes I'm a lot like Peter. I open my mouth before I think, or I'm not as brave as I would like to be. And perhaps in some ways today we're like Peter in the fact that we're misrepresenting the gospel. We've allowed religious systems to convolute and confuse and distort our understanding of it. But there is one truth that is obvious, and here's how you can really examine it. If the gospel is truly good news, then this should bring more joy to our journey and walk with God. Is your Christian journey characterized by joylessness or joyfulness? I'm not talking about having to be fake happy all the time, but I'm just talking about a deep abiding joy Is there a peace? Are you always looking to have to prove yourself? To make yourself worthy, validated, and accepted? Or do you realize that you've been made accepted in the beloved? Are you spiritually exhausted? Are you burnt out? Are you haunted by failure? Are you caught in a cycle of sin, shame, condemnation? then my challenge to us is perhaps it's time for us to start repenting of the lies that we've been believing about Christianity and and embrace the good news of the gospel once again. Let's pray this morning.